When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. You're listening to episode 219 of TV's Top 5, the Hollywood Reporter's TV podcast. I'm Leslie Goldberg, the West Coast TV editor, and I'm joined as always by the one, the only, the great Mr. Daniel Feinberg. What's happening, my friend? Very, very little. We've made it into late June now, so huzzah. Uh, Before we go any further, thanks so much to all who listened and commented on last week's uh, rather crazy, ambitious uh, 14 guest Happy Endings Writer's Room reunion podcast. It was one of the I would say it was probably one of the bigger experiments that we've attempted and uh, definitely appreciated all of you who loved it. But guess what? We also appreciated those of you who didn't love it and said that they wanted us to return to a regular top five. Uh, we appreciate any of that. Did you? Oh, absolutely. But not like no one was hostile about it. No one said, don't you dare ever do it again. But one or two people said this was I, I would rather if you went back to uh, to <laughs> to to regular podcasts, to which I can only say, sure, we are not going to do a 14 guest podcast every single week it was a it was a fun thing to do it was an amazing thing that you were able to get all of those people in a quote-unquote virtual room together and yeah i think i think it was entirely worth the effort to do it again and maybe someday we can do another podcast like six people or something uh 14 was really just an awful lot but they were really awesome and had lots of great stories i wouldn't change anything about it i i thought that conversation was the one of the best that I've seen. I'm obviously biased because I set up the whole thing, but <laughs> I feel like it was one of the, the greatest examples that I've seen so far of a larger conversation about all of the issues, a lot of the issues, I will say, that are on the table right now between the studios and the Writers Guild. And just it went really in depth. And it was a, just a great case study. So I don't know. I had a lot of fun doing it. And I would love to do, to do something like that again. But uh, let's get down to business. Number one. Up first, Dan Stevens is replacing the ousted Justin Roiland as the lead voice on Hulu's Solar Opposites. Meanwhile, casting is underway at Adult Swim for what sources say will be two actors to replace Roiland as the voices of Rick and Morty on the animated favorite. And speaking of Adult Swim, Mike Judge and Greg Daniels continue to bolster their animation roster and have landed a series order for the comedy series Common Side Effects for the late night programming block. It joins the duo's King of the Hill revival at Hulu, Freeform's Praise Petey, which is coming up soon, and Netflix's Bad Crimes, among others. Elsewhere, High School Musical, the musical, High School Musical, the musical, is ending after its fourth season (laughs) on Disney+. Plus. That is a thing. I should also add 
that High School, the really excellent series on yes. Freebie, has not yet been renewed for a second season. Get on that. Get to it, Freebie. And, and while you're at it, renew Primo, too, because that's also excellent. Absolutely. Uh, but speaking of other high school shows that have been renewed, Paramount Plus has picked up School Spirits, a TV show that I absolutely and totally reviewed and really and truly do not remember for a second season. And to the surprise of absolutely nobody, especially given where the first season ended, the Arnold Schwarzenegger comedy FUBAR has been renewed for a second season at Netflix. And speaking of Netflix, the streaming giant has updated its public-facing viewership data and has tweaked the way it reports how many users are viewing its shows and movies. This time, Netflix says a view is the total time watch divided by the running time of that particular project. And if you can't tell from the sarcasm in my voice, this is still algebra and it's still a farce for what Netflix considers, quote-unquote, transparency. Ding, 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 ding. I'm not sure if this is actually algebra. I think this is probably pretty basic division. Yes, uh, but it's still nonsense. Like oh, they know completion rate. It's they know nonsense. how many how many people are actually finishing it, how soon they're finishing it, and they're also changing the like all of their internal rankings, which now means that Wednesday is the most watched show on the platform instead of Stranger Things season four. You know what? Make this shit up as, as you see fit, Netflix. But it's all meaningless until you give us actual completion rate and the actual data that you, yourself, Netflix, looks at when you make decisions on renewal versus cost, etc. It is all preemptive uh, because the Writers Guild and SAG and the DGA are all negotiating involving streaming residuals. And a key thing that everybody wants is additional viewership transparency. And so this is, well, this not is it. definitely additional viewership data, but that's but it's not nothing the same. that we couldn't figure out before. I feel as if it's again, I feel as if it's different, meaningless information. I don't think I don't think we should take away that this is absolutely different and new information that in no way further well, maybe it illuminates things nope. somewhat. It doesn't nope. give us actual knowledge, but yeah, no. Anyway, pretty much still meaningless. There's yep. <laughs> there you go. Pretty much still meaningless. Continuing along, the latest round of layoffs has left the future of TCM, that'd be Turner Classic Movies, murky as David Zaslov's Warner Brothers Discovery has laid off uh, TCM's GM and several key members of the executive team. Uh, instead, the head of Cartoon Network and Adult Swim will take over the network naturally. Uh, Steven Spielberg, Martin Scorsese, and Paul Thomas Anderson, three people you do not want to meet in a dark alley when you've interrupted their ability to watch classic mu movies. Uh, have met with Zaslov in some capacity. They put out a strange statement where they said that they had talked to him both individually and as a group, which seems like a really fun thing. Honestly, if someone invited me to a Zoom and uh, Steven Spielberg, Martin Scorsese, and Paul Thomas Anderson popped up on the other end, I'd be like, ooh, fun, this is awesome. Yeah, but and when they're upset, are you still going to say, <laughs> yes. ooh, fun, this is awesome? <laughs> no, my initial reaction would be, oh, fun, awesome. And then they'd look at me and they'd go, yeah, we need to talk about this whole TCM thing. Uh, and anyway, the statement that they put out that was on Hollywood Reporter and other places uh, indicated that they expressed their concerns about the future of the network and that they were, quote, heartened and encouraged. But the statement said absolutely nothing about what they were heartened and encouraged by other than their sense that David Zaslav is perfectly fine with classic movies or something, just not the people who established the 
network's entire brand, uh, everything it did, and turned it into one of the most beloved sources of Hollywood history available on your dial. So yeah, that's a that's a fine thing for a company that's celebrating its 100th anniversary of uh, shaping Hollywood to be doing. <laughs> yeah, not so smart. But I mean, look, it, I, it, I'm not going to make excuses for this, but I will will just say everyone is trimming their staffs. Everyone. Disney's doing 7,000 layoffs, right? We've been through what I, I've lost count of how many rounds of layoffs have already hit Warner, uh, Warner Brothers Discovery. Also, like, I keep wanting to call it Warner Media, which was like a, a different incarnation ago because they went through multiple rounds of layoffs. I mean, we've we've been through it ourselves here at, at THR and at PMC multiple times. I mean, I was caught up in this a decade ago. It Look, it, it, it's not uncommon to see outlier channels. And yes, TCM, I'm going to include as an outlier channel to, to see their leadership change. I mean, go back to, a, a, you know, pre-pandemic and look at what Bob Backish and everyone else did to all of the cable channels. Every single one, like M Adult Sw uh, Comedy Central, MTV, Paramount Network, all of these different, TV Land, all of these different places had their own executive leadership and now they don't. They're all under Chris McCarthy. Look at look at the state of broadcast. NBC no longer has its own dedicated executive. Neither does ABC. This is par for the course, sadly. This is all true, and yet it doesn't change the fact that the optics are like shit. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah. I can't disagree there. So, Speaking of optics looking like shit, and wrapping up headlines, the TV Academy is mulling a delay for September's primetime Emmys due to the ongoing labor strife between the studios and the writers and potentially the actors up next and the DGA voting on whether to ratify or reject the, the studio's proposal. That's coming on June 23rd. So by the time you're listening to this, we may already know if the Directors Guild is going back to the table or if they have reached become the first of, of the three major guilds to, to agree to a deal with the studio. So yeah, I mean, not a surprise that the primetime Emmys could be impacted considering that the Writers Guild has no date to, uh, to return to the table with the studios and the AMPTP. Nope, not the least bit surprising. Uh, in fact, completely and totally logical. The Tonys did manage to do their award show 10 days ago or so. But as I said in my review of what was a very, very good Tonys telecast, it is not like everybody else can do what the Tonys did. Not everybody else has the ability to just do 12 performances by and by just do, I mean, just in definite quotation marks to do 12 performances from musicals instead of having little bits of hosted banter and all of that. Strangely, the Emmys cannot do that. Uh, yeah, this is this is not the least bit surprising. And I guess there we're probably going to see other things similarly of this ilk, you know, the uh, the. TCA summer press tour has already been canceled for this summer. And yeah, you, you, you might've heard that the strike is having an impact on many, many things. And yet the AMPTP seems to currently be fine with this. Yeah. And I mean, look, Comic-Con's coming up at, uh, in July at this point, no writers go, will be attending at the, as so far as I know, at least not on panels because those are paid for by studios and everything else. And in, honestly, Comic-Con is a massive marketing event that is designed to support and promote TV shows and movies and all the other projects in between. So if the actors go out on strike, what happens to, to Comic-Con? Great question. 
well, you know, already Marvel has said that they're not doing a Hall H per, uh, presentation, et cetera, et cetera. And the answer is that if actors can't promote upcoming projects, and that would be the case if the actors are either on strike or on the verge of on strike, or if the actors are feeling like they're expressing solidarity, uh, I'll be interested to see here if at some point the WGA starts talking about hopping on the train down the coast and uh, and taking up a few picket signs uh, down in front of the convention center, because I think that would be <laughs> that would a be mess. a way of making something clear. <laughs> I mean, logistically, I mean, that's already, you know, the, the space out in front of the convention center is a complete and total zoo during Comic-Con. So can you imagine a, a mass picket there? Wow. It would be absolutely crazy. We will we will see how that goes, but heaven knows absolutely nothing is business as usual, so there would be no reason to expect that Comic-Con or anything else would be. Yeah. Number two. Up second, Ryan Murphy is returning home. This is something that we have discussed many times with many people on this podcast, and you might have heard that Ryan Murphy had a really, really, really lucrative contract at Netflix, and that was very exciting. But you also might have heard that the contract was coming up, and you might have heard that Disney was, say, a logical place for him to go. Guess what? What you've heard has come to pass. No one is commenting, but what we do know is that Ryan Murphy's five-year, $300 million deal with Netflix ends this month, June, and he is most likely returning home to Disney. Disney's not commenting because the deal, uh, sources say, it has not been officially closed. And it's also notable that if he's making a deal right now with the studios, the optics of this are, well, shitty, because... In case you haven't heard, there's a giant writer's strike going on that's in, in now halfway to 100 days. So not the greatest optics here. So the big question is, if indeed the deal does close, will they announce it during the strike? Because again, that's that just solidifies the optics here of what we already know is going to happen. So the assuming that it does close... What will be interesting to see is how the new Disney deal compares to the one that he had at Netflix, given that he is, A, still producing shows for Netflix while he returns home to Disney to focus on shows that he set up while he was working for Netflix, and B, how much the industry as a whole has changed. When he signed the $300 million deal, this was in the thick of all the nine-figure packs that all the top showrunners were signing all over town. You know, Benioff and Weiss went to Netflix for, I think it was $250 million. Berlanti had got $400 million to stay at Warner Brothers. There's Dick Wolf got another, like, that guy's worth multiple billions at this point. I mean, he made two nine-figure deals within the span of six months back in the day. But if you look at the economic changes that have impacted the film and TV sector, look, we talked about layoffs at the top of the show and, and what's going on with Warner Media and Discovery and everyone else. It's This is par for the course. So what we're going to see is, is this deal going to have the same financial ramifications for Disney? Is this going to be another $300 million deal? Considering he's still going to be making shows for Netflix as part of this Disney deal. He's got carve-outs at Netflix the same way that he had carve-outs at Disney while he was at Netflix. So let me let me just do a recap here because I find this incredibly amusing. So while Ryan Murphy was based at Disney... 20th TV, which is the studio that Dana Walden used to oversee, sold The Politician and Ratchet to Netflix. So that means that Disney still owned those shows and paid Netflix a licensing fee for them. 
great. You've still got Ryan Murphy. You sold shows to Netflix. You're making money. At the same time, Ryan Murphy had ongoing shows at Disney, including American Horror Story, American Crime Story, 911, and its spinoff. So then Ryan Murphy leaves Disney for Netflix in 2019 when he made Hollywood, Halston, and hits with anthologies, Monster, and presumably The Watcher as originals for Netflix. During that same time period, while Ryan Murphy was being paid millions by Netflix, Disney and Murphy exploited a loophole in Murphy's carve-out and announced new anthologies in the quote-unquote American franchise with American Love Story and American Sports Story with an, and announcing a new edition of American Crime Story as well as a revival of the dormant anthology Feud. So now that Disney is poised to pay Ryan Murphy millions to continue working on Netflix's Monster and The Watcher, he's going to still develop new projects as well as work on Crime Story, Horror Story, Love Story, Sports Story, Feud, the 911 shows for ABC and Fox, as well as developing new shows. So, And they're going to be paying Murphy in the midst of this WGA strike. And as Disney is in the middle of laying off 7,000 employees across the entire company. So let's be fair to Murphy right now. And I'll just say that we have known that Ryan Murphy has been in talks to return home to Disney and reunite with Dana Walden since before the writer's strike began. That said... American Horror Story with Kim Kardashian remains in production in New York. Despite pickets on the set, Kardashian allegedly has crossed the picket line multiple times to continue work on the show. Ryan Murphy has denied threats, uh, alleged threats that he made to his crew, saying if you cr don't if you don't cross the picket line, you that it, that if you fail to cross the picket line, you will be banned from all future Ryan Murphy productions. So it's getting messy, but what's that's not the point. The point that I'm making here is. Why does anyone need to pay him at all? Because he's still going to be making shows for both of them. And you don't like Netflix doesn't need to keep paying him. They're letting him walk, right? Instead, he's going to keep making new editions of these two anthologies, right? Or presumably we, we don't know if, if the watcher is going to be turned into an anthology. I mean, I would bet money that it is because that would give him another loophole that he could continue to exploit while Disney is paying him. So you see where I'm going with this, Dan? <laughs> It's a little circular, but yes, it's I very circular. Yes, <laughs> and and you haven't and you haven't addressed the most important issue, the thing that I believe probably everybody is asking. Uh, what up with season two of Ratchet, Leslie? Oh, Dan, no one's talking about that. <laughs> no, hasn't he? Ha I mean, they picked that up with a two season twenty episode commitment, and I don't think it performed. Then again, how the fuck would I know? We don't know what Netflix ratings are, like. <laughs> It's it is sort of the, it is still the straight it is still the strange missing show in that Ryan Murphy. But isn't there another one like the politician? Wasn't that like he's he's Ryan Murphy has said that he wants to wait a couple of years until uh, what's what's his name ages a little bit more because it's you know it's obviously following his, that character's quest to become president. I, ben, ben Platt, right? I don't think yeah. after season two of The Politician watch. that anybody with an iota of sanity wanted a third season of The Politician. Right. These were not the breakout hits that Netflix was expecting them to be or hoping them to be. However, Monster and The Watcher allegedly were, at least by their creative accounting. Absolutely. Well, I, look, whatever. They were culturally, they were also... Uh, they were in the comp they were in the water they were in the whatever uh it it is still funny though the way that the tenor of these gigantic deals can change 
on a dime the way that the deal was just a disaster for Netflix or not a disaster. It was a disappointment for Netflix is that he was doing a bunch of shows that weren't making any sort of imprint. And meanwhile, he kept doing his shows on, on FX and whatever and kept adding shows that, kept that adding I shows on as, FX as and whatever. THR has reported did not sit well with, with the powers that be at Netflix that paid as him it, the backup as it wouldn't. For him. And then they, and then, so they got to seasons of, shows that were actually successful by their standards. Somewhat hilariously, of course, Monster completely and totally could have, should have been a season of American Crime Story. And similarly, The Watcher absolutely could have just been a season of American Horror Story. I think that there's no question those were basically versions of his FX shows that he was able to repurpose, but they were hugely successful. So it doesn't, you know, everyone wins. But yes, it is absolutely hilarious that basically Netflix played him for five years to make hit shows for FX. And now FX slash Disney is going to pay him to continue to make hit shows for Netflix. Look, it's a wonderful world to be Ryan Murphy. And it's a wonderful world to be Ryan Murphy in which you can have a you can have stories popping up in the trades uh, talking about your nine figure deals what how many figures i'm, I'm not good we don't I'm know not good. Not, i mean we haven't heard what the structure of this deal is like and to you know just to by comparison you know berlanti re-upped his deal recently and the previous deal saw him get i mean the reason that the dollar figure was so high is that warner brothers bought out the back end of a lot of the Arrowverse shows and a lot of the cw shows meaning he didn't have to worry about the po- ownership points and being paid out for those they just bought them outright from berlanti which is why that deal was so high. And there were incentives in that deal that paid Berlanti for for volume, meaning the more shows that he made, the more money that he made. So his new deal, however, is not structured like that at all. So again, you're starting to see the difference of what the last, how, how our industry has changed over the last five years since that big round of overall deal craziness. And absolutely, uh, without any question, um, <laughs> Without any question, the optics, we'll just keep talking about optics because optics are what they are. The optics of this are are very much garbage, uh, but it's the optics. And and obviously, anybody knows that when a story breaks in, it, whether it's The Hollywood Reporter or Deadline or whatever, about someone being in negotiations about whatever, it's not as if the negotiations began five minutes before the story went up this these are especially in a deal of this exactly these are conversations that presumably have been going on for many 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 months Uh, but on the other hand having the news break at this moment did not look particularly good for anybody (laughs) i mean and no one said this this is a break you know we were we were tracking this this was you know a, a leak that got out against you know, we're going to get into the inside weeds of entertainment journalism, which is a topic for another time. But no one wanted this news out right now. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. And uh, so, so the question of the question of which news break or which news report looked worse for sort of isolated writers, this or our colleague uh, James Hibbard's uh, terrific interview with Taylor Sheridan, where he wanted to, uh, <laughs> where he wanted to talk about how he doesn't ever want to have other people in the room with him because he prefers to work in his mysterious shack on 300 acres in some state northwestern state and how he writes his scripts in eight hours and in a closet yeah yeah in a a closet a closet that 
I feel like in all likelihood is that his last paramount overall deal paid for basically. Yeah. So, and, and that basically he's, he's been writing all of these shows in order to pay for his 300,000 acres. And yeah, yeah, there, big ranch, yeah, there's, there's been a lot of cynicism on, on Twitter about that story as well. That's which, been entertaining. I will and, say that you know, much. Just lots of, lots of, including from our, uh, a, some of our former recent TV's top five guests. Abs- yeah. Absolutely. Definitely. No, so it, it, look, it, it is just the, it is a reminder of who is and who isn't being impacted by the writer's strike and that, you know, the the upper 1% of the upper 1% remains doing just fine. And that's not so much what the strike is about. So, but you can go back to last week's podcast and listen to many, many, many of the things that the strike is about. Number three. Up third. Well, this isn't exactly the Warner Brothers Discovery news that we teased earlier, but it it all sort of came part and parcel. Uh, Things people talked about this week relating to what's happening with the Warner Brothers Discovery and HBO brands. Um, At one point, big deal about how HBO Max was going to become the repository of all things HBO. It was going to be the exclusive home of, of all things HBO. And, well... Folks have been chipping away with that and chipping away at that and chipping away at that. You might have noticed all of the various not hugely successful HBO shows that moved to Tubi a few months ago. But this week, the dam came crashing down. Break down what's happening to some of people's favorite HBO shows. Yeah, well, I'll start this segment just like we started the last one. No one is commenting because the deals allegedly are not done yet. But effectively, the walls to HBO's walled garden are coming down. Warner Brothers Discovery is in talks with Netflix to license a handful of HBO shows, which would be a landmark deal for HBO, who previously before this, their shows have rarely been licensed out to competitors. So what we do know is that the list of shows that are allegedly going to stream on Netflix include Insecure, Six Feet Under, Ballers, Band of Brothers, and The Pacific. So what's important to note here is that these titles will not be exclusive to Netflix. They will stream once a deal is completed on both Netflix and Max. So all five shows would continue to stream on both platforms. So why is this happening and why is it important? Well, it's happening because of the same reason that the TCM execs were let go. Money. Warner Brothers Discovery has $50 billion in debt. And these shows that they are paying to keep streaming on HBO Max, sorry, I keep calling it that, it's Max, are just, they're they're paying money for these shows to sit on their platform. And instead they're thinking, well, if we license these shows, they can work twice as hard. We can get paid for them while they're, we're not losing anything from our own platform. We can also expose them to new audiences. And then whenever that deal runs out, bring them back to, to Max and get, people to to maybe watch them more than they did here, more than they did originally on that platform. So if the strategy sounds familiar, it it should. HBO previously licensed a handful of shows, including The Sopranos and The Wire, to Amazon a few years ago. True Blood was recently quietly licensed to Hulu, which is a Disney property. And of course, who could forget when Sex and the City, the edited episodes were uh, sold in syndication to TBS. Again, that was still in, in the, the the former Turner family, but they are still at the 
they were at the time and remain to this day corporate siblings. So again, this is a money move to help reduce and pay down the debt while still exposing the shows to new viewers. And it's kind of mirroring a strategy that Bob Backish used a few years ago at Paramount when they were still trying to bulk up the former CBS All Access. So they took some of their biggest hits, including South Park, and they sold it and they licensed it to another platform. In this case, it was HBO Max in a $500 million deal that they're, by the way, they're currently being sued over because they used it to basically, they bulked up with South Park movies and put those on Paramount Plus and said, okay, all the audience who loves good comedies on, on Max because they've got Friends and Big Bang Theory, two big stalwarts, can be exposed to South Park there. And then, by the way, come pay us a couple of bucks a month and and watch brand new South Park movies. So it was a kind of a bait and switch, I guess. That's part of what, what the lawsuit's about. But it's it's generally the idea of make these shows work for you and then get increase the revenue that you're getting from them and then bring them back home and exploit the audience. So I see the strategy, It, but the big question that I have, which no one has the answer to from all the people that I've spoken with so far, is will creatives stars, actors, producers, everyone else involved in those shows be paid for the licensing to a third party because you're basically selling the show all over again. This is the syndication market happening in streaming. So someone's got to get paid. And and again, you want to go back to optics, which is seems to be the, the theme of this episode. You're doing this in the middle of the WGA strike. So if creators aren't going to be paid for this and you are as a con- as a company that you're already have the ire of 11,000 writers who are already on strike. Like, oy vey. Oy vey, Dan. <laughs> yeah, no, it, this is this is all optics because on a purely... Uh, I mean, it's optics and money. Optics and... Well, but I mean, money is what it's about. Optics are why we're discussing it in any way that's anything other than this is just about money and that's how it goes. You know, the, the, the realities of the business are this is absolutely... It, I mean, it's syndication. That's all it is. It's not. It's not complicated. This is as old as as the business itself. Um, it's just how it looks coming off of the initial feeling that HBO Max was supposed to be the repository for all things HBO, and that that was sort of how it got a lot of what its prestige was supposed to be built around. It was supposed to be here is the place you go to get the best library of the best television and it will be the only place you can get it and that was what they were prioritizing at that moment fine things have moved beyond that if you want to go purely practically as our colleague joe adalian has said as many people have said hbo has had its shows on streamers in the past it's had shows on on amazon it's had shows on uh hulu and again as i mentioned earlier, the 2B shows uh, with stuff like Westworld and The Nevers, etc. This is not... These are failed shows, not hit shows. And and that is where... But except that some of the shows that were in other places, like True Blood was, I believe, on either Hulu or on Amazon, which... And that's not a failed show. That's a a hit show. Uh, Yeah, but it's a hit show from what? 
almost 20 years ago. Sure. And insecure is something, is something different, but still to, to me, it's more notable having things like uh band of brothers and the Pacific. Cause those are, those are prestige shows. That is, they, they are not shows that have defined themselves necessarily over the years on their popularity, though. God only knows those shows are incredibly popular. Those are sh- and seen. They, they could be considered popular again very soon because there is a, th- a third miniseries in that trilogy coming again not to hbo but to apple to apple exactly because hbo passed but also i you know every t- every every time memorial day rolls around i tell people watch band of brothers in the pacific those those are to me those are the gold standard of of war-based original programming and you know, if I if 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 people wanted to know about World War II and didn't feel like watching a Ken Burns documentary, those would be the things that I would tell them to watch. So that's that's the only place that this becomes anything head scratching is is no longer will these things be the exclusive domain of HBO Max now into Max. Removing the HBO there already was about saying we are not about the prestige. We are about the it is for everybody. It is whatever you're in the mood for. Every viewer has multitudes. Sometimes your multitude is Jason Momoa. Sometimes it's uh, Issa Rae. Uh, So it's just all of these different ways that the exclusivity and the premium are made to be devalued. This is, again, this is optics. This is not what the reality is. The practical reality is David Zaslav had to cut money. Fine. Totally get that. But if you look at it, and that is all that I am doing here, is looking with my eyes when you have the executive regime at your prestige classic Hollywood uh, channel being relieved of their duties and replaced by random people on the grounds that anyone can do that job. And when you have some of the most prestigious shows on your portfolio, no longer being an exclusive to max slash HBO max and saying they're for sale. You can get them. If you pay money, the optics are that the brand is not as special as it was. And And sources say HBO uh, executives, longtime HBO executives fought tooth and nail against this move. But yet here we are here. And and that's 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 all that is. That is the the distinction that I want to make is between my understanding that money is what this is about. And this is not some revolutionary thing that is being done here. This is just syndicating content to make money. But it does absolutely and indisputably, I will not take anybody's answer that this does not devalue the brand. The question of whether it matters that it devalues the brand, that is not for me to answer. <laughs> okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchases, prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered ChumbaCasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby. Mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa. Take it easy, Judy. 
The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Number four. Up next, instead of our return to the strike zone, which I feel like our listeners got a heavy dose of last week with our Big Happy Endings Writers Room reunion, we're going to shift gears and we're going to take a look at the best TV of 2023 so far. With some spoilers, we should warn you. We are thrilled to welcome back THR TV critic Angie Han for a discussion of the year's best TV so far. Angie, thanks again for joining us. I'm so happy to be here. So we've got 10 shows, obviously, that we're going to go through. And there's no ranking this year, right? We we decided to, well, I don't know that we decided to. I think we just did put them in alphabetical order this time around. It's it's already kind of a semi-redundant exercise because we're going to celebrate a lot of these same shows again uh, at the end of the year. So keeping them, out months, of, yeah. keeping them out of numerical order at least allows for the possibility that there could be some surprise, like which of these shows would be at the very bottom of our list and will fall out by the end of the year. Oh! <gasps> We may or may not be willing to reveal that in this conversation. But yeah, these, yeah. these are in alphabetical order. And, and again, so, so don't think that we're in any way ranking them. And we could even knock them out of alphabetical order and just make it sheer chaos if you wanted, Leslie. Um, I mean, look, I'm a big fan of chaos right now because, I mean, the whole entertainment industry is in complete and total chaos. So why not? And before we get into the, into the top 10 couple of, of notes here. Obviously, stay tuned for our end of year episode where you will hear these the, the year's best shows in order ranked. And if you'd like to, for, to read Dan and Angie and their banter back and forth about the, the shows that we're about to talk about, that story is in this week's issue of The Hollywood Reporter, which will be online on Tuesday. That would be Tuesday, the 27th of June. No, All right, guys. No banter, just blurbs. I want. I want to warn everyone. There's. There's no banter. We just did blurbs on these. Yay, blurbs! I'm just going to keep saying blurbs. We're going right, to say blurb. we're saving our banter for this episode right here. You're about yes. to hear it. This well, let's, is the banter. Let's get, well, let's get to it, guys. Where do, Where do you want to start? You want? I mean, I'll, I'll start with the one on this list because let's see. As I, I'm, I'm cheating here. I, I'm looking at this list of ten. I have seen a total of two. <laughs> let's start with the, the obvious one it just ended it's obviously probably the front runner for the emmy succession you can go first on that one angie since you wrote the blurb though it would have been in my top 10 of, as well of course uh well as you said it was the final season and as with any final season i always get a little bit nervous about like how are they going to stick the landing what are they going to do um and you know this one is one i had a lot of faith in so it wasn't like i was necessarily stressed that they weren't going to be able to, but I was very impressed. I love the decision. We can talk full spoilers, right? At this point, I love the decision to kill off Logan early in the season and watch spend the rest of the season watching all the characters kind of scramble to figure out, you know, what their places are going to be in the aftermath. I loved how that brought out just so many intensely emotional performances from so many of the actors. I loved that um, Connor, who the always forgotten Roy kid, got more a little bit more to do this season. Um, Ellen Ruck is one of the ones that is usually not very much in contention for the Emmys, and I hope I would love to see that change. But, you know, it's going to be a very tough race this year because Succession has been so popular. 
One thing I found find interesting is that you know you tr- you you at least acknowledge that there was a spoiler coming up for the death early in the season. But when you actually take a step back and look at what the fourth season was, it's not really so much of a spoiler. Like it really and truly, if we just spoiled something for you, we spoiled one plot point in the middle of the season and actually one plot point towards the beginning of the season. So I think that's an interesting way to look at how Jesse Armstrong and company approached this season and what could and couldn't be spoiled. Because even if we were to tell you the way that things resolved in the finale, I don't think that would really be spoiling the show either. I think that's kind of where the brilliance of Succession comes from, is that it's not really a show that was ever truly about the destination of who would take over Waystar Royco and and what would happen to each of the kids and who would cut whose throat and all of that. It's the way in which they did all of it. And, And the way in which they did all of it in this final season was so heartbreaking and full of these little bursts of hope But even then, if there was a burst of hope, you still had to be thinking to yourself, why on earth am I rooting for anything hopeful involving any of these characters in the first place? It's not like there's going to be a happy ending to this because there just couldn't be. And I feel as if emotionally, beat for beat, where the show went this season, it it to me felt pretty close to perfect. And, you know, this is a show that the first three seasons were all in my top three or four for their respective years. And this one seems like a pretty safe bet to be right up there in that group this year. Yeah, I mean, I love your point about how it's not really a show where uh, the spoilers are the point. It is, it is a show where, you know, if I was talking about it to other people, I would try to preserve, I would try not to tell them what happens just because it's fun to discover yourself as you go along. But even the fact that he dies, like, I mean, the show is called Succession. He almost dies, like, at the very, in season one. So it's not necessarily like that was a surprise. But I think the timing of it at least caught me very much off guard and uh, kind of raised the stakes for the final season in a way that I that made it even more exciting possibly than the previous seasons, even though like you, I have liked all of them so far. So let's stick with HBO. This list is very heavy and I misspoke earlier. I've seen four of of the total 10, but Ooh, there are, tw- that's twice what you initially said twice, Leslie. Listen, I haven't had enough caffeine today. Okay. Just leave me alone. So in addition to succession, this list also includes HBO shows, Barry, spoiler alert, The Last of Us, and then Max Show, the former Comedy Central series, the other two, plus HBO's Somebody Somewhere, which I haven't seen the new season of, but I'm like halfway through season two. But anyway, this, I mean, what does it say that that all of these, that that so much of your list is is occupied by HBO or HBO adjacent shows? Well, I think the most important thing it says is that uh, when we made this list, neither one of us had seen enough episodes of The Idol yet to know if it was going to be in our uh, in our mid-season top 10. So, I mean, when you get towards the second half of the year, God only knows how many more shows there could be. No, I, I feel as if what it says is that HBO has had a great creative run and we, we've talked extensively about what it, meant or didn't mean for all of these shows to be coming to an end or for several of them to be coming to an end really just of these Barry and succession but already somebody somewhere has been renewed for another season already the last of us has been renewed for another season though uh i wouldn't say either one of those shows is likely to be a you know 10 season show or anything and i don't think the other two has been renewed but i suspect somehow it's going to be unless david sasloff does horrible things so uh People will be very unhappy. 
<laughs> if it is not, but we'll see. So yeah, no, I, I think what it says is that they have a lot of good shows on HBO, even if they're doing very, very weird things with them on a corporate level. It says that, and it also says, because both Barry and Succession were, what, season four? So it says that a few years ago, they had some great ideas about shows to Greenlight. Indeed. So where do we want to go from here? Do, I, do, we, do we want to just keep Let's going with the HBO shows? Okay, go. Listen, yeah. this is the way that we all, or at least I consumed these shows back to back. You know, going from the Succession finale to the Barry finale was, it was a very intense evening of, of my life, I would say. Um, and so Barry was also in its final season. It's also, so it was also, you know, kind of bring this to a close. And it was another one that I felt like, you know, in its last season, it, it also took a big risk. Like in the middle of the season, it does a time jump. Uh, which I think maybe not everyone was on board with, and I can see why, but I found it to be just such an interesting, exciting choice. It, it made it unpredictable. It also really, I think, expanded the scope of what the show was trying to talk about, like not just kind of satirizing Hollywood or this one guy's journey to be like, no, I know I keep killing people, but I promise I'm really such a good guy, but like kind of turning that around and making it about not just what kind of stories is Barry telling himself, but like what kind of stories are we telling ourselves about like people like this? What are we, what are we really thinking about when we watch shows about like this guy who is clearly a horrible person, but insists he's a good guy. And you kind of, at least I kind of, you know, like, it's not like I was ever like, yes, he's a great guy. I love him. But you know, there was a lot of, it's kind of like this with the succession characters where there's part of me that's rooting for him a little bit in spite of myself and part of me that hates him. So, you know, uh, that part of it was really rich. Uh, and I loved I guess more spoilers. This one is a little bit more twisty, but I did love the way Barry himself goes out in the end with this just completely anticlimactic death. I thought that was perfect for the character and a perfect way to just punctuate the story that they've been telling this whole time. No, I, I think I, I, I've been mulling over now the Barry finale for you know a few weeks, like everyone has, and I feel like probably to me. Uh, I was less enamored with it than certainly than I was with succession that where I, I just felt as if where it left things for me didn't give me as much to think about, or maybe came across in some ways as being more, you know, I, the, the timing and placement of the specific things that happened in the finale were interesting the question of whether at the end what it got to, to me, felt like a summation of the entire series. I'm not sure. I've, I've just become a little bit more negative on on the season than I think I was when I was watching it initially. I think it was a good season. I think that uh, Bill Hader is a, is a great director and every episode looked interesting and had all of these funky Euro art cinema um, and then sometimes strange slasher compositions and the, the mood and pacing of the show were really like no other show on television and I respect the hell out of it. I think that the time jump probably did more for Sarah Goldberg and her performance than it necessarily did for Bill Hader and his. I thought she did great work after the time jump. Uh, no, I, I think probably maybe I might have been happier if the show had ended after the third season where, where it felt like a lot of things were up in the air, but maybe in interesting ways than after the fourth season when maybe less was up in the air but perhaps overly resolved. I, I don't know. I we'll, we'll see six months from now, whether I feel like I want Barry to be in my top 10 for the year. As of now, I'm feeling like it might fall just out, but it's still a, a pretty great show. And I definitely understand why it's in our top 10 for 
the first half of the year. Because we hadn't seen the idol yet, as you said. I mean, pretty consistently. I mean, like, I I feel like we need to make that kind of the caveat to almost all of these choices is given another couple weeks, would we drop this show for the idol? And, you know, it's it's just up. It's just up there. And and based on what you've seen of the idol, does that rank on the year's worst TV shows list? She asks after having watched the first two episodes finally. Probably, but we kind of eliminated that as a thing that we did a couple of years ago, which I feel good about. That there there was really no reason why we needed to be um as repetitiously mean, he says, in the process of making a repetitious running joke about how awful the idol was. So or has been or is or whatever. <laughs> anyway, they can't all be winners. <laughs> Yeah, so let, let's stick with HBO here. So you've got the new season of Somebody Somewhere, Angie, on the list as well. Yes, yeah, that was quite a night of TV with um, Succession and Barry coming to a series finales in the same night and then immediately followed by the totally very different Somebody Somewhere. Uh, so, you know, I, as as I think you, you probably already know, I was a huge fan of the first season. Um, I loved that it was just this this show that kind of seems really unassuming and quiet, and yet there, it had just such capacity for for joy, for fun, for pleasure, for humor. It's very, very funny. Um, Bridget Everett and uh, Jeff Hiller continue to just knock it out of the park this season. Uh, but I thought, like another, I thought uh, particular this season, particularly this season, I thought. Um, I should have looked up her name ahead of time. I think it's Mary Catherine Garrison. She is she is play Sam's sister, and she has so much more to do this season. And I really liked her arc where she's trying to navigate life now that she is divorced. But yeah, I mean, the first season was just about kind of Sam going from this person who was grieving to like starting to let people in. And as, as the second season starts, she has let some people in, particularly her her best friend. But then it's it's her kind of trying to figure out like you know like how to expand from there because she's you know she's happier at the beginning of the season than she was at the beginning of last season but she's still kind of stuck like still kind of um you know struggling with a lot of uh jealousy struggling to kind of deal with a lot of a a lot of uh the changes that are happening in her life and the season is kind of about her opening herself up even more and it just continued to be such this like beautiful little Lovely ray of sunshine, uh, particularly on Sunday nights after HBO would spend, uh, you know, an hour and a half straight just pummeling me. So, yeah. And you can, by the way, go back and listen to our interview with Bridget Everett about season one of Somebody Somewhere. That would be in episode 153 from January 28th, 2022. I like that Somebody Somewhere leads with its heart. I, I think that some of these shows on our list come across as entirely nihilistic. And in some of the cases, they probably are. But I think that some of them really do find their way eventually to heart. I like that somebody somewhere kind of starts there and and it starts in a good place. It starts in a wholesome place. It is not, uh, it's not always necessarily, I, I don't know. It's not always a sweet show. Sometimes it's a show that has a little bit of undercurrent of, darkness or sadness or melancholy but it's it's not a deeply cynical show it, it is a show that has a, a real faith in in family in community in friendship and yeah that's that's just such a nice thing and it is such a strange thing that this show was for much of the spring packaged with <laughs> succession and berry which really aren't all that similar, but what they have in common is they're all really, really good TV shows, and and sometimes that's commonality enough. 
Yeah, I mean, I I like your point about how it leads with its heart. I think you know, there's there's lots of shows that are trying to be nice, trying to be positive. Some of them don't always come off as authentic. And one of the things I appreciate about Somebody Somewhere is that it comes by that sweetness and that gentleness and the optimism very honestly. It's still very clear-eyed about who its characters are and what they're dealing with. Uh, it also can often just be completely silly and ridiculous. Like there's a, this season, there's a whole very long scene involving lots and lots of diarrhea. It is disgusting and very funny and somehow also weirdly sweet. Entirely sweet. And th- and that was what I was sort of looking for the right way to put it because I-, I was trying to say that it wasn't always sort of a family friendly show. And I don't know if that's exactly what I meant because, you know, families have to cope with diarrhea too. That's that's just a thing. And it is a and it's an extended diarrhea scene. Let's just keep saying diarrhea over and over again. It's like as many times as humanly possible. That is like everything else on the show, grounded in friendship. That is that is kind of the backdrop and background of that scene. However gross it is, it's about friends dealing with diarrhea together. <laughs> I I've I've entirely lost the thread of this conversation. But somebody somewhere is definitely a very good show, and there's definitely a long diarrhea scene in season. Well, two. let's stick with HBO here, and you've also got. The Last of Us. So, uh, yeah. Ooh, this one, a, this, I don't know how to transition from talking about diarrhea to The Last of Us. Diarrhea so like, to, <laughs> to mushroom zombies and to and to a very different show that's about friendship and the importance of community, but also what can happen to communities if they become toxic, uh, because sometimes communities can go very, very wrong. And sometimes all you want is just your one buddy as you travel across the country trying to avoid the mushroom zombies or something to that effect. Uh, no, the other two is is definitely not a show that leads with its heart, but it's definitely a show that is very much about its heart. Like it, it is, you know, if you if you want to talk about what it leads with, it leads with an apocalypse, it leads with zombies, it leads, leads with tragedy and and people dying and and horror and all of that. But the show is so grounded in the hope of the core relationship between the two main characters, uh, between these other characters who are just trying to, to live their lives because the world has fallen apart and there are mushroom zombies and, and all of that. Uh, you know, I've, I've repeatedly called this probably the best, uh, video game adaptation for for screen ever, and and I think that probably ultimately ends up selling the show a, a tiny bit short because it's really just a great TV show. And when I say it's the best video game ever, that adaptation ever, that basically puts it better than some crap. Uh, but but no, so <clears throat> Halo. <clears throat> well, Halo. Honest, honestly, Halo is so far from the worst in that genre. Halo is just kind of a forgettable show that existed and went through how many showrunners, Leslie? Three, four? Oh, many, many, many. Anyway, many. I would say in addition to all that, it would cost millions and millions and millions and millions and millions and millions and millions of dollars. Many, many, many dollars. Millions. Uh, and it's not like Last of Us is a cheap show. It is a show that does have the aforementioned very, very, very scary uh, mushroom zombies and all of that. But but really and truly, the show is about Pedro Pascal and uh, Bella Ramsey and the dynamic between those characters and then the characters who are introduced along the way. So a lot of the conversation about the show has centered on the early season episode, the third episode with Murray Bartlett and Nick Offerman, which is just this beautiful, extended 
sad love story, wonderfully played by both actors. Can they share an Emmy for that episode? Because wow, I like how do you mean vote girls for one with the crown, the where they break, where one of them wins it, but then they break it off and share it. Exactly. But since Murray Bartlett has an Emmy for uh, White Lotus and Nick Offerman never won an Emmy for uh, Parks and Recreation, was never even nominated for an Emmy for Parks and Recreation, I feel like he should. Utterly criminal. Ridiculous. But I I feel like he should be at least allowed to take it home. But then there will be all the questions of whether the Emmy actually ends up going to James Cromwell for his uh, big episode of uh, Succession in which he was fantastic. So lots of great options in, in that particular category. Normally, Emmys make a big old mess of the guest acting categories. I think they have enough options this year to avoid it. Uh, so yeah, so really interesting. But again, so those two, there was a whole episode where Storm Reed and Bella Ramsey spent an episode in a mall. That was a beautiful episode. Melanie Linsky had a wonderful two episode arc. So just lots of these great grounding performances. And then when the show wanted to, it could freak you out and terrify you, whether it was the gigantic mushroom zombies or whether it was just humans are sometimes very, very, very bad to each other, uh, which, you know, having just having just watched the latest unremarkable spinoff from The Walking Dead, it's always good to be reminded that that trope, you know, the in a post-apocalyptic world, humans are sometimes the greatest threat of all. It, it can be done extremely well if done extremely well. And, and The Last of Us did it at times remarkably. Yeah, I always thought that it found such a, I thought it generally found such a good balance between kind of hope and, and nihilism. Like, it, it, like you know, Walking Dead, I think I think of as kind of the classic example of one that just was just like, we want to be all dark all the time. Everyone is horrible. Everyone is miserable. You know, like life is just the worst thing you can imagine. And there are moments of The Last of Us that get very, very dark, uh, very, very sad. There are moments where people do really horrible, awful things to each other, but they're also just, but the show never seems to lose sight of the fact that like you know despite all that there's a reason why we don't all just why these characters not we i guess because we haven't been taken over mushroom zombies yet but those characters don't all just kind of lay down and die and it's because even within that you find these relationships that matter to you you find uh moments of of beauty or little things that you enjoy you find some you know if you're pedro pascal you look at bella ramsey and the the world kind of you, you feel like you have a purpose again. You feel like you can see a future again. If you're her, you feel like you kind of feel like you have someone who's looking out for you, someone who cares for you. You feel like you, you, and she herself kind of feels like she has this purpose, which kind of, <laughs> sorry to get back into spoilers again, but yeah, that um, finale was also pretty gut-wrenching, but in a way that I thought was really interesting for how I was going to set up the next season. I really loved that the that the season had so many little interludes where you do things like kind of wander off and go hang out with Murray Bartlett and Nick Offerman for a few episodes. Cause especially since um, the, the Pedro Pascal and Bella Ramsey are at the, at the center of the series the whole time, I think it could be really easy to just see it as a series of things that happen to them. But I felt like the fact that it would go out of these way to kind of look at all these other people was just such a, you know, it was a show kind of reminding you, like, this is a thing that happened to everyone. This is a, this is a world where the people in it still matter, even if they're not the main characters. And it turns it into a television show. Like, otherwise, you you get that that bullshit, it's a nine-hour movie thing. And no, this this was not a nine-hour movie. This was a, a nine-episode television show. Most of the episodes were, they weren't standalone, but they were autonomous. They were episodic. They were episodic, if you will. 
and that <laughs> says a lot to Craig Mazin and Neil Druckmann how they structured the show. They they decided to treat it, God forbid, like a television show, and it worked well as a television show. And more people could uh, learn from that particular lesson. So you've got one last HBO adjacent show, and that's the other two, the former Comedy Central series that now streams on Max that made the list. Guys, which one of you wants to take Uh, this? Oh, this one was a last minute decision that I made because I just, of all the things that I've watched this year, there are a few things that made me laugh harder than this current season of the other two. I feel like this season has been, compared to previous seasons, kind of unhinged in a great way. It got, uh, it gets kind of raw and darker and sadder in some ways. Uh, There's more kind of, dramatic beats like a lot of all the characters kind of come to a moment of reckoning with uh how horrible they've become or how messed up their lives are or things like that but it's also but it also just had me in stitches there was a and part of it i will admit is just a personal thing because if you are the exact age that i am and that i'm guessing the people who made this show are the cultural the pop culture references are just so hilariously on point like there's an extended Romeo and Juliet fish tank scene homage that like I had to pause because I was just gasping for breath. There's a there's a whole episode that's just Pleasantville because why not? Uh, but it also just continues to be this like really sh- like blisteringly sharp, like screamingly funny kind of satire of Hollywood. I mean, there's there was a whole plot line about uh, about um, Carrie getting to be Disney's like first gay character or something like it like you know he was going to play like a amorphous blob in Haunted Buddies 4 or something. And and uh, that's something I've been thinking about for a long time. And especially it came back up again because someone from Elemental was talking about how it's like, oh, this is the first non-binary character. And it just, I was just, it just was one of those moments where you're just like, oh, the other two is becoming real. Like it, it, in that sense, it kind of reminds me of like how sometimes you would watch, like things would happen and you'd be like, oh, 30 Rock predicted this or something like that. Uh, definitely this season has felt to me to be much more reference driven or much more parody driven. Like the, as you say, there was an episode that was Pleasantville. That was just what it was. And there was the episode that had the extended Romeo plus Juliet, uh, scene. And that also had a, you know, just an extended 30 minute riff on, on, AIDS dramas, multi-part AIDS dramas on Broadway. And so, yes, if you happen to have watched all eight episode, eight hours or whatever of The Inheritance or however many of Angels in America, it's, it's a very, very specific reference. And even if you don't, you can still understand what they're doing in it. And I think there's, there's been a lot of that this, this season. And I think I have perhaps liked it more as a result. I've always... I've always been mixed on this show. It's always been a show I've found funny, but maybe not as funny as other people. And I still don't think I found find it as funny as the people who apparently have to pause to to uh, catch their breath. I definitely do not need to do that. But it, but this season has been really sharp. But going back to where you started this, I think that's the most important thing, is that it's a show in which everybody is a, is a horrible narcissist, but it's also a show that has a very, very good idea of when it wants to have them have these moments of self-realization. And, and I think that's the thing that, that makes the show really work is when the characters briefly pause in their awfulness to recognize that they're a family, to recognize they have needs outside of themselves, to recognize that they are horrible. Uh, and I think that has been one of the things that's been that's helped set season three apart 
for me, I think, is that it's both as ridiculously silly and punchline, punchline, punchline as it was before, but it's more aware of where its heart lies. And and I think that has been a benefit to the show. But again, it definitely, unlike somebody somewhere, it definitely does not lead with its heart. It just gets there eventually. So we're going to go from one big spending outlet, HBO, HBO Max, to another. There's one, maybe two shows here from Netflix on the of 10, which is kind of astounding considering how much volume Netflix turns out. So I'm, I'm not going to spoil what's next. So you guys take it from here. There's only I think there's only one from Netflix. Yeah, I don't I didn't know where. But then we also but then we also have one Amazon and one Hulu show, but in almost each case it's not necessarily the ones that the service poured the most money into. I think I think that's definitely the thing is that, you know, if if Amazon if Amazon poured however many hundreds of millions into turning Citadel into a global franchise and whatever. Show me the ratings, Amazon. We, they will never do that, and, and that is fine. And yet Citadel, not even really in consideration to be on a top 10 list, whereas on the other hand, our top 10 list does include uh, Boots Riley's extremely angry, extremely funny, extremely anti-capitalist I'm a Virgo, uh, which to me is just such a, I, I, I just love the idea of what Boots Riley might say in a quiet and introspective moment to discuss the amount of money that Amazon gave him to make this show, which is so angry about the corporatizing of America and so angry about the dehumanizing nature of late stage capitalism. And then it's also a show about a 13 foot tall uh, black teenager uh, dealing with a world that is unprepared for him. Uh, this is Jarrell Jerome's first major role since he won a very, very deserving Emmy for uh, When They See Us. And he's great in, in just a very complicated performance. He's playing not not just a 13 foot tall black teenager, but a 13 foot tall black teenager who's been raised entirely as a shut in his his. Uh, adoptive parents don't think the world is ready for him. They're right. Uh, and they've basically kept all things away from him. They've kept fast food away from him, but yet they've also allowed him to read comic books. And so he's got just a very skewed version of the world. And it's, it is a show that is extremely funny extremely on point in its satire. Uh, at some point, one of the characters played by Walton Goggins declares that all of art is propaganda. And there is no question that, uh, that I'm a Virgo is, is absolutely it's propaganda for Boots Riley's worldview. But at the same time, it's a totally dazzling in, in a strange way piece of of filmmaking boots riley directed all seven episodes and just the effects work to make jerell jerome into this 13 foot tall character it's just fun is what it is it's it's some it's a lot of forced perspective it's some computer effects i assume in some scenes it's so totally and clearly puppetry and i love the fact that we're using puppetry in this context uh and it's just good. better puppetry than AI, right? Oh, it's well, yeah. And I think, I think, I think the day we see Boots Riley making an AI drama, he would probably have very negative thoughts about AI. Um, I'm assuming he's talking about it on Twitter because he's he's been very naturally supportive of 
<laughs> the Writers Guild strike. Uh, it's you know it's a really really good supporting cast um, with Mike Epps and Carmen Ajogo as the adoptive parents. Walton Goggins is is great as a billionaire who has really really long hair, so you definitely would never confuse him with Jeff Bezos because otherwise you might think billionaire media publisher. Sure, but no, he's got long hair, so totally different guy. Lots of really good supporting performances. Uh, Olivia Washington, who apparently is Denzel's daughter. I had not realized that. That's what our editor, John Frosch, tells me. I, I believe him. Uh, she has a, a great supporting character as the main character's love interest who has a sort of special talent of her own that I won't spoil. But it it's just an unlikely love story, an unlikely satire, an unlikely allegory or fable uh, it does so many different things. And so even if it doesn't always succeed at all of them, it's, it's also a superhero story. And I don't think it necessarily does that all that well, but it's got so much ambition. And, and I just love that a show like this gets to exist. And so, you know, whatever, whatever garbage Amazon pumps out some weeks, they also did this one. So full credit. Yeah, Amazon doesn't seem to mind having shows that are just like, are corporations like Amazon terrible? Because I know it's only, I know I'm a Virgo and the boys are only superficially kind of similar, but that's, you know, it's just it's just odd that those sit next to each other uh, on your Netflix, or not Netflix, God, on your Amazon queue for uh, shows that are just like, hmm, is our parent company horrible? But yeah, I mean, I like, I love what you were saying about the kind of, you know, all the different ways that they make this giant, this man look giant. Like one of the things I really loved about the show was the the very handmade feel to it. It just, you know, it, I mean, the show's perspective also feels intensely personal. As you said, you, Boots Riley is not someone where you watch his movies and it, it feels like it could be anyone else. Like it feels like this is just a, this is just very much him. It doesn't feel like it's a, it's, you know, he's being guided by like what people told him to do or like what people told him like, oh, you know, like, that his shows or movies should be like or anything. And you, and you feel so much of that here. Um, you know, I've only seen about half of it. So I think there's probably a lot more stuff coming. I'm sure there's a lot more stuff coming that I'll find fascinating. But in the early episodes, another thing that struck me was just how, how like kind of tender it is or, or like it can be, it can also be a lot of other things, but uh, I mean, like you see this, this literally overgrown man, child guy and I just I just felt this like flood of like protectiveness toward him and I think that really is key to to how you experience or at least it's been key for me for how to, how, how I experience this story uh and, and you know you're and see this guy kind of going out in a world that just is, does not always know what to do with him and and a lot of that just goes to Jarell Jerome and how good he is at playing the innocent side of this character that that to me is is sort of the underspoken aspect of it um and yeah so okay so you so you mentioned uh the boys you could also point to the consultant which while i don't think it's a very good show is very much a uh that would be the christoph vaults whatever thing which is also very much an anti-corporate uh or at least corporate cautious piece of uh, television. And similarly, The Swarm, which is which is very much about a, here is what happens when we get immersed in a media landscape in which we obsess about all of the wrong things. The Swarm did not make my top 10 or anything, but I think it's also definitely a show that is worthy of consideration and, uh, and might as well just, if we're talking about the best things of uh, 2023, Dominique Fishback's performance in that one should be on any list of great things from the year. Yes, and they spent all that money on Citadel. And meanwhile, everyone I know who watches Amazon is watching Jury Duty, which is a freebie show. Yep. Yes. 
but yes, that is that is definitely proof that <laughs> you can throw a lot of money down a well, but sometimes all the people really want is James Marsden playing James Marsden. Yes. Well, still lots to get through. We're about halfway through the top 10, but uh, you've got one unscripted show on here out of all, all of them. Dan, it's it's a favorite. We know it is, um, and and so this is another one of those. It's a it's a streaming show, and it is definitely not the streaming show that the company in question put most of their financial resources behind. But uh, Taste the Nation with Padma Lachmi is is one of my favorite is one of my favorite shows in what is also one of my favorite genres at this point. The the kind of cultural understanding and cultural tourism through food genre, which is just always one that I enjoy watching uh, and is, is it proliferates and there are lots of different options. Uh, Hulu has its own uh, soul food version of this franchise. Netflix has three or four versions, not directly this franchise, but this genre rather. And Taste the Nation to me is kind of the best version of what it is. And it's the best version of what it is in large part because Padma Lachmi is as good a, a television host as there is. So she travels the country, people talk to her, people are comfortable around her and honest around her in a way that they're just not with everybody else. She sometimes learns cooking and that's fun because people think of her as being top chef host Padma Lachmi. Very sad that we're going to have to deal with top chef without her for the next season. Uh, but she also, she learns to chop wood. She learns to butcher a hog's head. She learns all sorts of strange and interesting things, but she also talks with people from different immigrant communities. Sometimes it's very recognizable people. Yvonne Orji from uh, Insecure shows her around Houston and talks about the Nigerian community there. Sometimes, though, she's just talking to uh Ukrainian immigrants in in New York City and just talking about their experience and what it means to be Ukrainian in 2023 and what it means to be Ukrainian in 2023 and how that flows through the cooking of borscht or something. It's it's such a this this is another show like somebody somewhere that really does lead with its heart. It it leads with its heart and it leads with the fastest way to a, a man's heart is through a stomach, but fastest way to all of our hearts sometimes is through our stomach. Fastest way to cultural understanding is sometimes through our stomachs and taste the nation just understands that so well. And it is, it sometimes sneaks up on you. And I would say, there is not a single episode that I've watched of this show where I didn't get unexpectedly teary at some point where someone just talks about what food did to make them feel like they belong or what food did to remind them of where they came from. It's sometimes just so beautiful. And then sometimes they're making food and it looks fantastic. And sometimes Padma is, is speaking in relentless double entendres it's it's just a a really a great show and deserves to be in any conversation with the best food television there is and like i said this is a genre i love and this is a show i love let's go from food tv to a scripted tv show that has a name that could be food beef on netflix made the list guys angie this one's it is uh, not your pick? Uh, well, I think Dan and I both like this one. I suppose yeah. I know. We 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 sort of split we sort of split these up, but there's no question that beef would have been certainly in my top five or top ten. However, we. Uh, but unfortunately, it is not that kind of beef. There is very little actual like 
you know, cow meat beef in the show. It is, uh, they are referring to the other kind of beef uh, where you just have a horrible grudge against someone because it is about um, Ali Wong and Steven Yeun's characters are total strangers. They live in the same city, but they don't know each other. And then they have this, you know, it's one of those things that I feel like anyone who's, who has a car has experienced at some point where you're in a parking lot and someone's just being an asshole and you're almost crashing into each other and you start honking getting and getting kind of upset, except that where most of us then just go home and complain to our, you know, families, roommates, whatever about it. These people then uh, go on this like chase all over the city. Then even after they go home, they're just constantly plotting and scheming to do this. They're doing this spy versus spy thing where they're just always trying to screw each other over for the whole season. And it, and a lot of them are insane because, you know, they're, you have to be pretty unhinged to begin with to, to, to decide that you're going to do things like, uh, you know, worm your way into someone's life by befriending their their sibling or try to ruin their business all because they almost crashed into you in a parking lot several weeks ago. So, you know, a lot of the twists are pretty wild. They're often very, very funny. But the thing that really struck me when, the, when I watch the show is there's this like, ver- there's this undercurrent of of just existential melancholy that kind of ties the whole show together and that was the thing that really just caught me off guard uh it's a show that you know tonally as you can as you've probably gathered from my description goes all over the place but i feel like um lee sung jin the creator just has such a confident sense of like how to shift from one tone to another so it, it never feels like it's just kind of random ali wong and steven yin both do such a great job of shifting between all those different things um I, it is a show that i know I, you know it, it had it ran into some controversy earlier this year so that made it a little bit less fun to root for to be honest but it is a show that when i watched it i mean i was just really astounded by what it was doing it's it's so unique it has such a and as 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 an asian american person who grew up in southern california it also just felt like a lot of it felt very recognizable to me like there's a scene where steven yun goes into a a church and just starts like crying and i was like i feel like i have not been in this actual space i don't belong to this actual church but and yet i feel like i have i feel like i know this person so yeah it was a show that i just found really remarkable and then in the last couple episodes takes some Pretty big swings. I think the finale is one that maybe so will turn some people off, but I don't know. I feel like a big theme for me of all the shows that we've been talking about are that I just enjoy it when a show really just goes for it and does something big, even if it's not a guarantee that it's going to work. Yeah, a show that's that feels precarious to me is always is always a fun one to watch, where I sit and watch and wait for it to fall off the cliff. Yes, it's always disheartening when a show like that does fall off the cliff, and most of them uh, tend to. So also Netflix, don't even consider doing a, a second season of this one. I, I don't think there's any real risk, but don't even consider it because it didn't fall off the cliff. So I so, mean, literally speaking, they did fall off a cliff. Uh, literally speaking. Yes. So, but no, it's like, it's, it's a show of, of crazy escalation and just one self-destructive misadventure after another, where you're sitting in your living room going, Oh my God, just having a three second conversation. And that's something that so often annoys me on TV shows where or movies or probably in life when really, really horrible things happen because people wouldn't have a three second conversation to try finding commonality. But this show does so well with not just why the characters wouldn't or couldn't have those conversations, but just how everything starts off disproportionate from the beginning and then somehow keeps finding ways for everything to become more and more and more outsized, both in terms of the horrible things that happen, but the emotional stakes of it all and and just how, how crushing it can be 
but also sometimes how very, very funny it is. And yeah, this, this show is a terrific show. And as you, as you say, it is, it is too bad that the conversation around it has been, has been misdirected and, you know, it's, I don't feel like the conversation that it's been misdirected to is a wrong conversation to have. I I think that people do need to have those, you know, we're talking about David Cho for those people who, who don't know. I, I do think this is a conversation that probably needed to be had by the producers more actively before they actually made the show. But, and it's, it's a conversation that needs to be had, but it doesn't mean that we can't have the conversation about what a great show beef is as well. Yeah. I mean, like I said, it's just, for me, it was just like, it doesn't take away the fact that I enjoyed the show when I saw it, which was before the controversy. So I wasn't thinking about it at that point, but it just, it just made it like, you know, less fun to root for, I think is what I said earlier. And that's just, yeah. But uh, I mean, one, and one of the ironies of that controversy is that I feel like the show itself does such a good job of being like, here's these people that are doing some actually like fairly horrible messed up things. But like the show is kind of, showing them so much empathy and grace in, in how they deal with these things and like, you know, trying to kind of forgive them for their flaws and stuff like that. Like it's, it's very compassionate in that way, in a way that I found so disarming. And that's one of the reasons, not the only reason, I mean, any, for any show, the whole controversy around it would have been disheartening, but it was, it was just like a, it was, it was also just kind of like, come on, really? Like, did you not watch your own show? Like, uh, you know, it's not necessarily a show about like, Oh, these are horrible people trying to do better, but it is a show that tries really hard to kind of, you know, have a lot of, empathy for just people who a lot of people who feel forgotten or kicked around or stuff like that so i mean yeah it's a it's a show about how hard how hard and horrible and just like utterly deeply lonely it can be to be a person and uh and and it's also a show about how if if you almost crash into someone in the parking lot maybe just let it go and don't ruin your whole life over it well put, well put. So you've got two shows remaining on the list. I'm going to spoil them right now. It's Happy Valley and Dave. And I'm going to go to Dave here because it's actually funny. All of those things that Angie was just saying that beef is about, I think that Dave is about all of those things as well. I think that Dave is also a show about bad decisions, self-destructive decisions, and how hard it is to be a person while at the same time, in the case of Dave Bird or Lil Dicky, how hard it is to be a person and to also be a celebrity, but to be a celebrity of a very specific type where your celebrity is based on both you mocking yourself and people mocking you, but trying to still be that person while in the case of this third season, looking for love. I think that it is, it is a show of, entirely unsurprising immaturity. It is about a rapper named Lil Dicky in which the billboards for the show have featured the main character coming out of the fly of a pair of boxer shorts. So the immaturity is not at all surprising, but it is always surprising how far down the show can go with that. But also the amount of heart that the show has. Uh, The show has always done a spectacular job with its female characters. That's always been kind of the surprising thing about the show is, is how, is how Dave bird as a creator doesn't always have full empathy for Dave bird as a character, but he always has empathy for the other characters around him, whether it's uh Gaeta who continues to do great work as a variation on himself, but also the first couple seasons, Taylor Mishak as Ali, uh, the main character's girlfriend, she was wonderful. They haven't found a way to really 
reintegrate her into the story as much as I would like. But this season had had a beautiful arc from Chloe Bennett, who who I've liked in things. I thought she was really good on Marvel's Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. This is an entirely different level. This says Chloe Bennett could be a star if people gave her the right material. She's wonderful. Rachel McAdams had a multiple episode arc as herself. She was just delightful just uh, between this and are you there god it's me margaret this was a wonderful spring for uh for rachel mcadams um and just a reminder of how great she is and and the cameos just kept on coming there's an entire episode set at the met gala which is like one of the most ridiculously star-studded episodes of television you could ever see one bizarre cameo after another jack harlow really just hilarious and then the finale probably people have spoiled the guest star in the finale but it's definitely someone who goes full-heartedly into a cameo as himself uh the the season was just full of great episodes and uh it's it's a show that people don't unfortunately talk about enough and i wish they talked about it more um so that would be uh beef no that would not be beef that would be dave which is fxx but all available XXXXXXXXXXXXXXXXXXXXXXXXXXXXXXXXXXXXXXXXXXXXXXXXXXXXXXXXXXXXXXXXXXXXXXXXXXXXXXXXXXXXXXXXXXXXXXXXXXXX
maybe not every bit her equal, but he's very, very nearly her equal. And given what I already said about how good she is, that's pretty damn impressive. It is a, it is a dark show. It is a harrowing show. It is a show that, that leads going with that theme again with some of the most fucked up crimes imaginable. And it's hard to watch at times, but it still ends up being a show about family and a show about recovering from trauma. And the, the third season, which third and final season brings the story around full circle in a way that I I found thoroughly satisfying and just underlines again, how great these performances are, how, how good this story is and just how it insinuates itself into, into your soul as it goes along, because it could just be a mystery, but instead it ends up being something far deeper than that. And so, yeah, final season of happy Valley, great great stuff and worth checking out so just a quick recap your top 10 you've got barry beef dave happy valley i'm a virgo the last of us the other two somebody somewhere succession and taste the nation angie thank you so much for joining us this week to go over the the year's best so far thank you for having me i always love talking tv with you guys number five As usual, we wrap things up with the Critics' Corner. Among this week's major new launches, Marvel debuts Secret Invasion on Disney+, FX The Bear is back for a second course on Hulu, and Just Like That returns for another bow on Max, Boots Riley's I'm a Virgo launches on Amazon, you just heard Dan and Angie talk about that one, and Swagger is back on Apple. Dan, what you got? A lot of stuff, a lot of stuff. I am not going to go through all of the things I said about I'm a Virgo again. Basically, my review of I'm a Virgo is in that last segment. It's really, really good. I don't think it's going to be for everybody, but I think that if you if you like Boots Riley and his particular brand of cheeky propaganda, I think you will absolutely enjoy this. It is a show with a pretty fair amount of inspiration and with a lot of humor and with a lot of heart, but we can move along. I am now going to pause and let the sirens, ambulances, whatever, go by. Because whether you can hear them or not, they're annoying me. Come on. Go away. Okay. So yeah, I'm a Virgo is one of the best things this weekend, but it's not the best thing this weekend, probably. And we'll we'll get up to that. Uh, uh, already, Secret Invasion has premiered on Disney+, and it has not seemed as if people have been all that excited about it, uh, given that largely the conversation has been dominated, for whatever reason, by the fact that the opening credits were created with AI, uh, which is, again, it's much Talking more an issue optics. of optics than anything else. That's what it is. I, I think I think the number of TV shows that have probably had their credits created by, by AI in the past however many months is some. And this just happened to pop up here. Uh, ultimately, it's not really notable. The credits are 
honestly neither good nor bad uh when when the news started breaking that the credits were uh were created by ai my immediate reaction was wait i remember absolutely nothing about the credits on the other hand i don't vividly remember most of the credits from a lot of these disney plus marvel shows so i don't know what we're talking about there uh <laughs> But I think it also reflects something, unfortunately, about Secret Invasion is that it's more interesting, finally, to talk about the uninspired AI-created opening credits than it is to say really all that much about the actual series itself, which is really, really too bad. I, I was looking forward to this one. The The strong indication was that the way they were approaching this was they were taking Nick Fury, the Samuel Jackson character from all the movies and all of that, and uh, the narrative relating to the Skrulls from Captain Marvel, and they were basically treating it like a Jean le Carré or Graham Greene espionage novel. And so it was going to be very slow burny. It was going to be very, uh, you know, difficult people doing difficult jobs while the world could be collapsing around them, et cetera, et cetera. And you watch the first episode and I stopped counting at at least three or four different direct references to the third man, which is one of my probably five or 10 favorite movies of all time. Uh, but references to the third man are not the same as understanding why the third man works. Uh, you can have jokes and references about cuckoo clocks and little kids with bouncing balls who interrupt key scenes, etc. But it's it's not the same as actually developing simmering tension and high stakes in a world about the banality of espionage. And this is mostly just banality, but not specific. It's it's just unfortunately kind of kind of dull and kind of and this is peculiar because the world is being infiltrated by aliens from outer space who want to, I guess, basically make Earth their home planet the stakes are never established and are never meaningful. And basically instead what we get is an awful lot of people talking about how Nick Fury has lost his step, how he's over the hill, how he's whatever. And that's, that's just not enough for a show. Uh, so many good people in this show. You have obviously Samuel L. Jackson, you have Ben Mendelsohn, you have Olivia Coleman, who is one of the few people who actually looks like they're having a great time. You have Amelia Clark, having seen two episodes, can't really say much of anything about her. She's just kind of there, which is not really her fault because her part is just kind of there. Uh, Kingsley Benadir, who plays the the leader of the Skrulls here, um, I think he's pretty decent, but not much to do. Uh, Don Cheadle has a good scene in the second episode. That's fine. Uh, yeah, there's there's almost no action. There's very limited stakes. It doesn't look particularly good. It doesn't get much value out of the subtext of it's 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 a very good subtext because it's a subtext that plays to a lot of the neuroses that people have about most immigrant issues these days. And you get people on one side of the political spectrum uh, obsessing about the idea that immigrants coming into a country are basically coming in to replace the existing residents of the country, demographically speaking. That is what this is about. How can you get so little thematic value out of it? Uh, I have no good answer to that, unfortunately. Uh, 
look, it, it could absolutely find some momentum. And if you told me that by episode five and six, that I would be on the edge of my seat in large part because of the actors in this show, I would not be at all surprised. I would be like, okay, sure. Why not? It, it found its rhythm. It started off slow and it found its rhythm, but unfortunately two episodes is all I've seen. And unfortunately, again, two episodes, not particularly uh, good. So um, also premiering this week, and I feel like mentioning it because no one is talking about it. And it's a better show than a lot of things that people are talking about. Uh, BET Plus, of all things, has a, uh, a drama called Average Joe. It's a drama slash dark comedy slash thriller. And to me, it's basically BET Plus's Ozark. And I think that if people like Ozark and everyone who listens and reads me knows, I never particularly liked Ozark, uh, but I still understood what it was and what it was doing and why people liked it. I think a lot of those people will like Average Joe, but because it's BET Plus, no one's talking about it at all. And I mean, pretty literally. And it isn't like the show doesn't have some people people recognize. It stars Dion Cole, who who Blackish fans love. He was fantastic on, on Blackish, just hilarious. Uh, other people will know him from his Old Spice commercials and stuff. He's, you know, he's working guy. He plays uh, an ordinary guy whose father dies. Uh, he lives in Pittsburgh. He's a plumber. His father seemed to to own a small towing company, etc. But then he discovers that his father was actually both working for the Russian mob and that he stole $10 million and a Lamborghini from the Russian mob. Well, this guy, this ordinary Joe, as it were, he could use the money. His family could use the money. Also, his friends could use the money. And his friends include a friend played by Malcolm Barrett, who people will know from many, many things, Better Off Ted, etc., and they have a friend who's a white cop, Michael Truco from Battlestar Galactica. Like I said, people who you will recognize are in this show. And they begin to try to get to the money. Uh, if you've seen Treasure of the Sierra Madre, if you've seen A Simple Plan, if you've read anything by Jim Thompson, you'll know that when ordinary people encounter ill-gotten money, things go poorly. Very soon, there is a fairly high body count, and uh, and that's less than ideal because you know people dying and whatnot. Uh, but it's it has a decent sense of self awareness. It has uh, it ratchets up the tension very very quickly, and the cast is really solid. Um, so I, I think that people will probably, if they have BT Plus, which they don't, but if they find their way to it. Maybe. Um, but there are really good performances here. Dion Cole is a solid leading man. Malcolm Barrett is really, really good in what is effectively the Billy Bob Thornton uh, from A Simple Plan character. And then Cynthia K. McWilliams is fantastic. She's uh, She plays Malcolm Barrett's character's wife. She's a true crime obsessive. And so when things get all criminally, she knows a lot of the ins and outs of this world. And this character has become such an archetype on television in the past couple of years. The I'm a true crime obsessive. So I could either commit murder, cover up a murder, whatever, whatever. Uh, This is one of my favorite versions of that characterization yet. Like it's much better than any of the comparable versions in Peacock's based on a true story as a hypothetical example uh so yeah you you haven't heard anybody at all talking about average joe and i think it's a solidly above average uh show that has um 
that really should have an audience and you know people aren't going to have heard about it and i'm not telling you that you need to subscribe to bet plus exclusively for this show i am not a lunatic but if you happen to have bet plus give it a look. It's worth it. Um, anyway, I mentioned that the best thing on TV this week was probably not, well, this maybe I'm a Virgo. I, it's hard to know. Uh, we, basically, we did, we did our mid-season top tens before I had watched the new season of The Bear. Uh, would The Bear have maybe made our mid-season top 10 if we had both seen episodes in time? I would say possibly. Uh, a lot would depend on <laughs> what we decided was the, uh, the deadline for mid-season. So... Let's just pretend it was after the deadline, and therefore we don't need to worry about it. Uh, the first season of The Bear kind of snuck up on people. It was under-promoted, and it really it wasn't under-promoted. It was promoted as a slow burn. It was promoted as a, here's a little thing we hope people will find. It was a little bit out of character because uh, FX and Hulu made it available all to binge. So it was really a show that was designed to have people discover it, and people discovered the hell out of it. I... I love me a good uh, word of mouth success. And this, the bear was absolutely one of those. It also ended up though, being one of those shows where I liked it. My review of it is very positive. And then the avalanche of, of audience obsession for it kind of caught me a little bit surprised. And suddenly I was a little bit like, well, I like the show, but I don't know if I like it quite as much as some of these other people do. So, so I ended up feeling like a hair more negatively towards the bear simply because of outside perception. Whatever it is, the second season of the bear is, I would say, better than the first season. And I would say uh, probably comfortably better. I think that it is a, uh, it is a more mature, a more thoughtful season. I think it is a season that is not as hung up on, okay, we're going to make you incredibly stressed out for you know, however many episodes, there's a lot of that. I would say that there's a mid-season episode that's as suspenseful as anything in the first season, and that includes the the single shot episode that everyone wants to talk about. And then the uh, the finale is also every bit as as stressful. So if you are allergic to stressful television, The Bear continues not to be a show that you should watch. Uh, <laughs> but and that is Leslie raising her hand. You cannot see her, but she is raising her hand. Uh, and I would encourage everyone to go back and listen to episode 175 from June 24th, 2022, nearly a year ago to the date, Dan, when we had Joanna Callow, the executive producer on to talk about the bear season one, including that terrific episode with the winner. So by the way, that episode also featured the best TV of the year so far with Angie Han. So huh. here we are. What a, and what a, a segment sm- about what the hell was going on with TNT and DBS. So. <laughs> The more things change, the more they stay the same. Uh, history repeats itself first as tragedy and then as comedy, or maybe as comedy and then as tragedy. Whatever the case it is, history repeats itself. Um, yeah, second season is, I, I think it's a better show. I think it's a, I think it's a show that, you know, all of, look, all of the adulation in the first season leaned into uh, Jeremy Allen White, which was fine. He, you know, he, absolutely anchored the show and whatever and and he's great so no complaints there and then there became the kind of secondary wave of okay but everyone understands that io edabiri is actually kind of the emotional heart of the show and i think people got that and i think the second season makes it even more clear that io edabiri's sydney is probably the heart and soul the hero the heroine whatever you want to say of the show 
but I think the second season does a very good job of bringing out the ensemble in a lot of meaningful ways that give them more to do. I think obviously Lionel Boyce's Marcus, uh, the aspiring pastry chef, uh, was a was a big part of last season. He's a bigger part of this season. Uh, Lisa Colonzeas uh, as Tina. I think she was a, a solid part of the first season. She's a bigger part of this season. And then you get to the people who were who were kind of among the more cartoonish or let's just say comedic elements of the first season who get more to do this season. I think Abby Elliott was really a, a total afterthought in the first season. She, to me, she felt like she was an entirely different show this season. She feels like she's completely and totally not just in this show, but integral to this show. I, I think that she, uh, gets a lot to do and suddenly becomes an actual part of the, the, uh, comedic dramatic ensemble rather than someone who comes in and is a little bit cartoonish in a couple scenes suddenly really good uh eben moss Bacharach is uh, you know the first season he was he was kind of the, he was richie the fuck up he was the guy who called everyone cousin and that was that was sort of what it was and and he did that extraordinarily well but i i don't know that i felt like he was a character i thought he was kind of a character trust me there's a difference between the intonation of those two things uh, this season, completely and totally, the character has an arc, has meaningful insight and transition into who he was and what he has become. Suddenly, it just goes from being a an amusing supporting character to being an important part of the ensemble. Uh, there are a couple new additions. Uh, Molly Gordon, who has kind of at this point made a, a strange career out of being kind of the girl who got away in various things. She played a similar capacity in Rami, which has a lot of the same creative team, including Rami Youssef, a former TV's Top 5 guest who directed the season's excellent fourth episode. Um, so, so yeah, she's she's excellent as a potential love interest in a story that really doesn't have love interests. Uh, Oliver Platt gets more to do. I remember back in the first season when we were not allowed to mention that Oliver Platt was in the season at all, that it was apparently a secret. It was part of the DNR. Uh, this year, the DNR for the show is even more complicated, and that is because there are even more guest stars, uh, some of them even bigger than Oliver Platt. Oh, shocking. Uh, anyway, lots of great guest stars this season and lots of great guest stars who are really, really very good and very well integrated into the show. So not going to not going to spoil them, even though I'm sure Twitter will have spoiled them for you by now anyway, because that's the way Twitter works. I think that the season does a very good job of underlining certain restaurant based conditions. I think it, I think it's probably a better and foodier show. There's one great episode where Sydney goes on kind of a culinary tour of Chicago, which is one of my favorite things that the show has, has done. But more than anything, I think that the show in season two does a better and better job of looking at the intersection of professionalism slash careerism and joy and hospitality and the idea of can you work in a hospitality industry can you work in a job that is supposed to give people joy that people assume is a joyful industry to work in if you are fundamentally anhedonic if you are fundamentally unable to take pleasure in anything and it gets into a lot of depth in several of the characters just on on what brings them joy, what brings them gratification out of the hard work that they do. And I think it's really poignant in, in that. Um, 
I would say some people are going to feel as if this season starts a tiny bit slow. The first couple episodes are just establishing, okay, well, here are the stakes, what we need to do. Here's why we need to get this new restaurant open in a ridiculously short window of time. Uh, But I would say by the third episode, it really kicks into gear. And I don't think the first two episodes are bad. I just think they're setting things up. And it it really goes extremely strongly. The, The first season didn't make my top 10 for the year. I don't think it made my top 20. It might've made a top 30 if I'd gone that way. Uh, this, this to me is a better season of television. I think there are still plenty of reservations that you can have about the show. I think that a lot of people had very justifiable criticisms about things like how the show situated itself within contemporary Chicago and whether it truly felt like a show that was reflective or representative of 2023 Chicago. I think some of those concerns probably are still valid. I think there were some people who had questions, comments about the show's treatment of race and nationality as relates to your traditional kitchen, like, for example, the complete and total erasure of the back of the house people who in many, you know, who are the lifeblood of many restaurants who are in some cases are undocumented workers, uh, in some cases are fundamentally exploited workers, um, many of them from Spanish speaking countries just barely a factor in the first season, not really a factor in the second season either. There are things the show could improve on, but, uh, but yeah, I think it, I think it is much better in the second season. Um, And then just as a little tease looking ahead to next week, because it will be before our next premiere uh, Apple TV, which has been struggling a little bit lately. I feel like Apple TV has had a bunch of really, really forgettable thriller type shows. I'll just make the crowded room into representative of all of them, but it's been, many more than that. I don't think Hijack is going to fix Apple TV and its recent streak. And Apple TV is probably fine. Keep in mind, they had that run last spring with uh, Severance and with Pachinko and a few other just really great shows. So they're doing fine. And I'd add that- And there's probably going to be more Ted Lasso, let's face it. And there is that. Uh, And and they just had this last Ted Lasso, so they're doing fine there. I, I would mention, though, that uh, Slow Horses on Apple is a much better example of the sort of Graham Greene, Jean Le Carré espionage thing than Secret Invasion. So so there, there's lots of good stuff on Apple TV. Uh, Hijack is, it's it's basically a seven-hour version of 24. It's uh, Idris Elba plays uh, an ordinary guy who is on a plane from Dubai to London who gets taken hostage. Uh, it gets taken hostage and he has to try to understand the hostage takers, blah, blah, blah. It's it's basically in real time. I don't feel like it's quite as addicted to the format as 24. You know, th- there are definitely ticking clocks here and there, but it it's not the structuring device. Uh, it establishes a, it its tension and it does it well. And and I think that is kind of the, the fundamental thing. And Idris Elba is a, a solid leading man. The show for me does go off the rails whenever it leaves the plane. It spends most of its time on the plane, but it also spends a fair amount of time in London with like five different secondary storylines of people in London trying to figure out what to do, none of which interested me in the least. I I understand it's helpful to see those things, but whatever. But when it's in the air, I thought Hijack was pretty interesting slash entertaining and yeah, not not bad. It, it'll it'll get you caught up and and curious, which is which is just fine. I've seen the first four episodes. 
I, I suspect that I'm right at the point at which A, they start giving answers to things and B, it starts going off the rails because it's sort of teetering already. But I will definitely check out more episodes of this. I just prioritized a lot of stuff instead. So as the quick recap, uh, strong, strong recommendations for uh, both Amazon's I'm a Virgo and FX's Hulu's uh, The Bear, second season, somehow better than the first. No particular interest, unfortunately, in Secret Invasion, uh, the underwhelming Disney Plus Marvel show, uh, despite a spectacular cast. I think people should check out Average Joe on BT Plus, but you'd have to have BT Plus for that. So I don't know. Maybe it'll get a uh, a regular BT airing. And I think Hijack will probably do what people wanted to do. It premieres next week on Apple TV Plus. And now I'm going to take a deep breath. For more, yes, more of Dan's weekly recommendations, be sure to subscribe to The Hollywood Reporters, now see this newsletter, and bookmark THR.com slash TV reviews for more. Be sure to subscribe on all of your podcasting platforms. If you like us, rate us. If you really like us, write a little reviewy thing. Those suckers help spread the word of mouth. Come say hi to us on Twitter. I'm at the fine print, F-I-E-N. She's at Snoodit with two O's. Let us know what's working, what isn't working, etc. If you have questions for future mailbag segments and maybe next week, maybe the week after, we'll see, you know, but we'd certainly love your questions. You can email us at TV's top five at THR.com. That's TV's top five, the numeral five at THR.com. Until next week, Leslie. Until next week, Dan. Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hey, guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun, too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.